This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. But well, I am uh, quite excited tonight to talk about one of my favorite books. Um, how many people have read the Screwtape Letters? Yeah. Right, exactly. This is one of the one of the uh, most commonly read Lewis books, um, and uh, <clears throat> yeah. So, so uh, how many people have read it in the last month? Okay, in the last year. Okay, in the last five years. Okay. So it's something that like lots of people have read, but maybe not too recently. So okay, good. Um, for, for those of you who have not read it or have read it so long ago that you totally forget the premise, <laughs> um, the Screw Tape Letters is a series of fictional letters from a senior demon, Screw Tape, to his nephew Wormwood, who is a junior demon or a tempter. And uh, the fancy word I'm only going to use once, but it's an epistolary work. It has nothing to do with pistols. Um, an epistolary work means it's just a book made up of letters. It's the last time I'm going to use the word. Um, but in the letters, Screwtape basically gives like a supervisor's advice to Wormwood on how to lead a human, who they call the patient, away from God and ultimately to hell. So the idea behind the Screw Tape Letters is that there's like a, uh, a demon tempter assigned to each person, and it's their sole job to distance that person from God by whatever means necessary. Wormwood is sort of the opposite of a guardian angel. And I have to say, I, the first time I read this, I was actually at the English Libri, uh, and I felt very vulnerable after reading it for the first time. I didn't really know what I was getting into. Uh, every page spoke to me in a way that I wish it hadn't. Um, I could relate to the book in a, in a way I wish I couldn't, <laughs> because I'd experienced a lot of the the sinful states of mind that Wormwood is trying to produce in the patient. I recognized, I recognized it. But it is a one-way correspondence, so we only get screw tapes sort of the senior demon's advice. We never hear Wormwood's letters, but we can kind of guess at his progress based on uh, Screwtape's either congratulations or his threats and abuse. Early on in the correspondence, the patient becomes a Christian. So the majority of the Screwtape letters are advice to Wormwood as to how to corrupt and weaken and confuse and undermine a Christian person's faith. Uh, the book is very, very provocative and uh, punchy and uh, relevant to anyone trying to live the Christian life, I think. Anyone who's trying to resist pride and greed and indifference and, and uh, all those good battles to fight. This book is extremely relevant. Um, 
the most important thing, I think, uh, to realize about the book, if you're reading it for the first time, is that everything is backwards. If you ever, I don't know if anybody remembers what a photographic negative is. Anybody remember what that is in the days before, before digital? So basically, um, you take a photograph with a, with a film camera. The first thing you get would be the negative, and you'd have to develop the negative to get the positive image. This is the negative. All the lights are dark, and all the darks are light. And then it's only by developing it, putting it through all the processing, that you would actually get an image that looks like something like reality. <coughs> Screw tape letters is like a photographic negative, where the darks are light and the lights are dark. Uh, because the letters are from the perspective of a demon, the enemy is God. Uh, our father below is the devil. Vices are virtues. Uh, he says things like, so I, I, um, I, didn't, I, could, I didn't have the time to look up every little tiny quote, so a lot of times I'm paraphrasing. It's like how I remember it to have sounded, so this, this might not be exactly the wording, but uh, he says things like, beware of the pernicious habit of charity. You know, it might develop in your patient if you're not careful. Um, and, of course, the vices are desirable and delightful to screw tape, and the... Uh, reality of human suffering is, is described as almost like sort of a drug. You could, you could overdo it, you know, be careful, because um, it's so uh, pleasurable. <clears throat> doesn't take long to get the hang of reading it, uh, but it can be disorienting at first when you first pick it up. So that's the basic premise of the screw tape letters. I'm going to, um, this is actually the first of three lectures that I'm going to be doing. I think it's going to be three. Hopefully it's going to be three. Uh, we never quite know when, when we start a series. But this is kind of launching off with with some of the background and some of the conceptual things going on in the book. Later on, we'll be talking about specific aspects um, that are going on there. So stay tuned for future terms. Uh, but today, we're going to be looking at these three three basic headings. <clears throat> the reality of the supernatural what sort of book is this anyway? ST is screw tape. Um, and then Lewis's central metaphor that he uses. <clears throat> so at Labrie, we often talk about the reality of the supernatural. That's a phrase that gets spoken a lot. It's one of the, uh, what we call the, the five themes of Labrie, which are, are important aspects of Christian truth that we tend to talk about a lot. And so they're, 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 um, they come up a lot. The reality of the supernatural means that there is a very, very real but unseen world that's intimately involved and wound up with the physical world and with our lives. It's because we believe in the supernatural that Labrie continues to have its odd policy of, of not fundraising and not advertising and praying for money and praying for students to come and all these things. It's because we believe that the supernatural is real. Uh, God is real, not at all distant from our daily lives. He is imminent, which is a fancy word for right here uh, with us. So he's in the room. He's aware of and in touch with every aspect of our lives. Um, he knows us and he sustains us. He listens to us. He responds in tangible ways in real time. So our ordinary lives are not beneath God's attention at all. He's that real. Well, the screw tape letters is Lewis's way of taking seriously the reality of the supernatural as it impacts ordinary life. So on every page there are reminders. This is pr probably what made it so disturbing to me. But there's reminders of the spiritual significance and consequences to our mundane, everyday ways of being. The way we 
speak, the way we think, what we do, what we love, what we despise, and what we fail to see, there are consequences, spiritual consequences to all of these things that seem so normal and innocuous to us. Sadly, obviously, the Screwtape Letters uh, reveals this. Uh, God and his angels are not the only spiritual beings at work in the world, and not all unseen things wish us well. So the Bible teaches us that the devil is real, and that he is an active, malevolent presence in the world. The devil is a spirit in constant rebellion against God, and who always wants to undo and destroy whatever the Lord is doing. So there is a war going on. And this is something that we've often talked about in the brief, the reality of spiritual warfare. Um, It's something we should not dismiss as just a fringy bit of theology for street corner Bible thumpers or super, super charismatic Christians. Um, It should be actually quite an ordinary belief for Christians, that there's an invisible battle going on in the world between good and evil, between the Lord uh, and Satan. And one of the chief battlegrounds is actually the human heart. So despite all the complexities, uh, and there are many complexities in the world today, there is ultimately an either-or choice to be made. And Lewis talks about this a lot. It comes up a lot in his book, The, um, the Great Divorce, this either-or nature of reality. No matter how complicated reality is, it boils down to an either-or choice. People who have not yet made the choice are on a knife's edge. Uh, will they turn outward to God in, in humility, accepting their need for forgiveness and enter into life and true freedom? Or will they turn inward on themselves out of pride and desire for autonomy, ultimately walking away from the only life that's offered? So this may be a terribly difficult decision, but at the end of the day, it's not a complicated one. There's two options. Uh, and this is very, very hard for people to accept today. Even even many Christians. And I'm not going to get into all the reasons why, but it's a great question. But but um, the either-or-ness of reality that the Bible presents is sort of an offensive thing, I think, to many of us. But the human heart is a battleground. And If we think this is overly dramatic way to put things, I think we're being naive. I think it's a reality. But I want to... uh, um, See, this is one of the things about lecturing on the screw tape letters. You can sort of just read quotes the whole evening, and it's great, you know. Um, So it's going to be a lot of quotes this evening. Buckle up. You don't have to read them all on the screen. Most of them will be on the screen. Don't feel like you have to follow along, but... but, um, this is something that Lewis wrote in the introduction or the, or the preface of the Screwtape Letters when it was first published. He says this, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The sort of script which is used in this book can be very easily obtained by anyone who has once learned the knack. But ill-disposed or excitable people who might make a bad use of it shall not learn it from me. I think this is actually quite a helpful way of framing how we read Screwtape. It gives us a little bit of a sense of of Lewis's intentions um, in writing it. He's saying that we need to be aware that the demonic is real. 
while at the same time check ourselves so we do not develop an unwholesome curiosity or fascination with it. On the one hand, a society that does not believe in the devil is one in which he is free to move about unchecked and unchallenged. Remember when I was in high school, or maybe it was middle school or something, that movie, The Usual Suspects, came out. Does anyone see that one? And there's, this, there's some quote in it. I don't know where it comes from, but it's like, ooh, the biggest, like, the best stunt the devil ever pulled was convincing people he didn't exist. Ooh. It was like this big, you know. Uh, anyway, that's kind of what Lewis is talking about here. Um, when a culture doesn't believe in, uh, in the devil, in a sense, it gives him a freedom to move. His ravages will not be attributed to any intentional evil will. And the culture will lose its language to name and describe evil for what it is. There's a book by, I think it's, is it Andrew, Andrew Delbanco, Death of Satan? He talk, talks about this thing. Actually, when you lose, lose this sort of, this, this notion of uh, malevolent presence, evil being real, you actually lose the language to describe what you see around you every day. And it leaves a culture without without words and without concepts to understand what we see. Along these lines, uh, in letter seven, Screwtape makes the case to Wormwood why it's so important to conceal his existence from the patient. He says this. My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. And then he says a bunch of stuff. And then we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. So, Screwtape is smart. He knows that materialism causes people to live naive and unguarded lives. So, to write off belief in the devil as as silly or immature or um, fantastical, the devils are comical characters with red tights and pitchforks, whatever whatever it is that comes to mind, uh, to write it off in that way actually gives him a dangerous freedom. But, on the other hand, and this is the other side that Lewis is warning us against, uh, a society that believes in the world of spirits and tries to seize spiritual power and take advantage of it, a society of magicians, will always get more than it bargained for. Unwholesome fascination with demons can actually really open us up in very vulnerable and dangerous ways. And so he's warning against both. Whatever we make of the screw tape letters, we should neither scoff at the notion of demons nor desire to know them better by indulging our curiosity about them. That's the, that, that's the, the tension we're holding here. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a little bit of background just about the book uh, before we launch into some of the ideas. Lewis first published the screw tape letters in uh, the Manchester Guardian, so it was in a periodical. In 1941, shortly after that, the periodical tanked and went out of business, and he doesn't know whether it was his fault or not, but, but uh, <clears throat> um, it's no longer with us. <clears throat> but this is during World War II. So that's the, the historical background to everything that he's writing here. There are several vague references to the war and the draft, bombings. Uh, it mentions the Germans once or twice in the course of the book, but only insofar as those things might affect the soul of the patient. 
and only insofar as they might be used as an opportunity to draw him and others away from God. So the actual current events that are going on don't seem to be of concern to Scrutin. Um, they're only, they're only, he, he, you know, Wormwood seems to be all excited about the war and the suffering that's happening. Uh, Screwtape warns him, don't get too excited. A lot of people turn to God in war times. A lot of people realize they're going to die in war times. We don't want people to realize that. So, you know, this, you know, don't assume that this is all good for us. So later, the next year, in 1942, the Screwtape Letters uh, was published in book form and was dedicated to J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Lewis and Tolkien were good friends. They shared a lot of their work together, um, had different opinions of each other's work. Um, I'm not sure how Tolkien felt about the Screwtape Letters. Maybe some of you know, if you've read letters. Uh, but ever since then, it's had many, many, many printings. It's uh, second only to the Narnia books in sales, which to me is really interesting given the, the, the content of this. this is, is some of it's pretty rough stuff. Um, anecdotally, I would say that of the people that come to Labrie, this is the book that most people have read, other than Narnia. It's a book, actually, that's that's res- respected by people who are interested in satire, you know, um, whether or not they're Christians or not. It's, it's a respected work of satire. <clears throat> uh, I was at Hobby Lobby the other day. I'm just looking at all the devotionals. and it's, <laughs> Hobby Lobby is not known for its rigorous literature section. <laughs> um, but there it was, screw tape letters, right next to, you know, A Lineage of Grace by Francine Rivers and whatever. Uh, mere Christianity too. So, um, it's even been adapted for the stage. I haven't actually seen a production of it, but um, wow. relatively recently, in the past twenty years or so, it's been it's been adapted for uh, for the stage. Screwtape gets a lot of lines. I think. Um, anyway, Lewis's own attitude towards the book is sort of ambivalent. It's funny; he didn't know that it was going to do so well. And he, I think he was like a little bit taken aback. Uh, he wrote this about the screw tape letters. He said, though I had never written anything more easily, I never wrote with less enjoyment. Though it was easy to twist one's mind into the diabolical attitude, it was not fun, or not for long. <laughs> um, There's a wonderful essay he wrote. It was an address, I forget when it was given, called The Inner Ring. And he alludes to Screwtape Letters without naming it. And he says something like, the association in the public eye between me and the devil has gone quite far enough. <laughs> so this is one of the reasons why he didn't, he, everyone wanted him to write more Screwtape Letters and he didn't want to. Finally, he wrote sort of an addendum called Screwtape Proposes a Toast. And it's a big speech that Screwtape gives. Um, for some hellish ceremony. I don't really know. Um, in any case, what sort of a book is this? Let's, let's talk more about what we're actually talk, what we're, what we're reading here. Uh, what kind of a book was Lewis setting out to write? And what is he not trying to write? And I think these are really important questions to ask if we're going to understand how, how to read them rightly. Um, first of all, it is a work of fiction. <laughs> I would say it's true fiction in the sense that uh, there are many theological and psychological truths to be found in it. I'll talk about that more later. But secondly, it's a work of satire. 
We'll talk about that more later as well. But I can start with the the fiction part. This is fiction. It would be a mistake to treat the book as an accurate depiction of the invisible workings of hell. As if Lewis had some special window into the hidden tactics of demons. It's not even Lewis's best guess or conjecture about how hell literally operates. Lewis had no special vision and was not interested in speculating about hell at all. Um, It's an imagined correspondence between two fictional characters. This means that we shouldn't conclude what Screwtape himself suggests, that in every moment of our lives there really is a demon with unlimited access to our thoughts, twisting and corrupting and undermining everything we do, think, and say. The Bible does not say this. Uh, and the Bible is still the authority, even when we're talking about C.S. Lewis. Um, he would agree. Uh, so, um, the devil and demons are real, but the Bible says relatively little about them. And almost nothing about the inner workings of hell. And this, of course, is an intentional silence, because it would do us no good whatsoever to take a special interest in these things. Uh, The Bible gives us enough good reasons to stay away, and God seems to think that's enough information. Um, One moment. But taking Scripture as a whole, I'm just going to do a little, a little, um, a very, very inadequate summary of some of the things that the Bible does teach us. Firstly, the devil is the enemy or an adversary of God and is by extension our enemy and our adversary, particularly the adversary of, of people in Christ. In Ezekiel 28 and, and many other texts, uh, it suggests that Satan was a servant of the Lord originally and was expelled from God's presence and cast down to earth because of his pride and his rebellion, his refusal to submit to God. Luke chapter 10 says this. This is after the disciples have gone out and they've been healing and casting out demons and they come back to Jesus and they're all pumped. And the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And then he goes on to say, don't be, don't be super excited about, about this. Don't get, don't get on a power trip. <clears throat> In Genesis 3, uh, we're shown that Satan is a liar and a deceiver. He persuades Adam and Eve to disobey God, not by making sound arguments, but by lying. By subtly lying. And in John 8, um, verse 44, Jesus says of the devil, when he lies, he speaks his native language. He is a liar and the father of lies. He wants to destroy people. He's declared war on the human soul. In 1 Peter 5, it says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But he is also our accuser before the throne of God, it says in Revelation 12. But he's an accuser who has been thrown down. This is the, the drama in Revelation 12. There's an accuser of the saints, but he's been thrown down. For those of us who are in Christ, his accusations are no longer taken seriously. They have no weight, because Christ, who is the Lamb, himself is on the throne. Uh, and as an aside, this is this is why the self-condemnation that so many of us as Christians 
subject ourselves to is so inappropriate. We condemn ourselves, but but actually, uh, in Christ, we're not supposed to condemn ourselves because the, the, the accuser has been cast down. God doesn't listen to, to what he has to say about us anymore. So the devil is a spirit whose power is, in a sense, broken, and who Christian people do not need to fear. James, uh, in chapter 4, says this. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He will flee. Run away from you. Uh, only because of the work of Christ and the power of the Spirit. This is not a power trip for us to flex our muscles and, and think of the devil as running away from, from me because of me. Uh, but it's because we're in Christ and the Holy Spirit is with us. But in any case, it's still sort of shocking. Resist him and he'll flee from you. <clears throat> According to scripture, the devil temporarily has a measure of leeway in the world. Uh, there's a lot of carnage in the world. There's a lot of things that go on today that actually please the devil. Um, we're not always, we don't always have the vision to name and identify everything that he's doing. But certainly the world is not as it should be. So there's, uh, evil has a measure of leeway, uh, but the devil is in no way free to do whatever he wants, actually. The living God is still almighty. You get a little vision of this in the book of Job, when Satan comes before the Lord, and the Lord gives him permission to do quite a lot, but he has to get the permission to do it, and then God says, and then that's enough, you can't do anything else. And so it's clear that <laughs> Satan is not free to roam, uh, in the context of Job, at least, you see that. Lastly, the Christian hope is that the power of the devil has been broken through Jesus' death and resurrection. So uh, there will come a time when the devil's defeat will be final and complete. It's another way of saying evil does not have a future. doesn't have a future. And that includes the evil that's in our own hearts, the things that we struggle with and that we participate in. So scripture tells us all kinds of things about our struggle with sin in the meantime. But it does not teach us that the devil is in every moment present to us, exerting his influence in the same way that the Holy Spirit is. It does not tell us that. The devil does not indwell us the way the Holy Spirit does. So uh, I do not think that people who are in Christ are as vulnerable to constant attack as Screwtape seems to think. That's what I'm trying to get at. Lewis writes in his introduction that there is wishful thinking in hell as well as on earth. Screwtape is guilty of wishful thinking. What he means is that even though Screwtape is obviously very intelligent, he is deluded and overly optimistic about hell's chances of victory. He's puffed up. So, this is a work of fiction, uh, but works of fiction can be true in the sense that they can reveal truth about reality. Even if they recount events that never literally happened, they can be true. So I, I would say the Screwtape Letters is a profoundly true fiction. Uh, it reveals true insights about the nature of evil and true insights about human sin and self-deception and indirectly true insights about the goodness and authority of God. Okay, so it's also a work of satire. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, one definition of satire is... The use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices. Um, 
sometimes it's political satire, uh, whatever, there's all kinds of satire, but the basic idea is ironic humor exaggerating something in order to, in order to ridicule it and mock it. Lewis gives us a clue that mockery is his goal at the very beginning of the book. The epigraph page includes two quotes, one from Luther and one from Thomas More. The best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. And then Thomas More, the devil, the proud spirit, cannot endure to be mocked. Here's a few artist representations of screw tape. I don't really know what I think about most of them, actually. Um, but in any case, each of them in some way is clearly someone who is not quite to be taken seriously. Right? They're, they're, they're trying to go for that. They're trying to portray him as mockable in some way or other. Uh, super self-satisfied and pompous. Uh, just ridiculously confident in himself. Uh, throwing some sort of fit here. Uh, we'll talk about the centipede scene later. Um, anyway. <clears throat> As with most satire, uh, nothing should be taken at face value. Through the words uh, of Screwtape, Lewis is constantly stating the opposite of what he really believes in an exaggerated, caricatured sort of way. So this means that they are layers of meaning which demand careful reading. And I'm going to look at these two very basic layers, two things going on all the time in the screw tape letters. <clears throat> the first layer of meaning is screw, t- is screw tape's meaning, what he's actually saying, what he thinks. And I would just call this the text. This is the sort of superficial, like face value reading. What is screw tape actually saying to Wormwood? Even this is a challenge, though. It's, it's maybe the superficial reading, but it's not simple because. Some of what he says is really true. Uh, there's a lot of things that Screwtape sees clearly. He sees some of the patient's flaws and hidden motivations better than the patient does himself. Uh, but he also sees spiritual realities that humans are blind to. The reality of the supernatural is obvious to Screwtape because he's, he's uh, a spirit. He's in it. Um, and as we've seen, he wants Wormwood to keep the patient in a state of blindness to that reality. He doesn't want the patient to realize that there's a supernatural battle going on. He wants him to be oblivious to it. Okay, so some of the things that Screwtape sees that the patient does not see. He is much more aware than the patient is of God's presence and power. And it pains him. He's aware of God with a degree of terrifying clarity. He says this... I don't think I have this. No. Anyway, he says this. The humans do not start from that direct perception of him which we unhappily cannot avoid. They have never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing and searing glare, which makes the backdrop of permanent pain in our lives. So think of fingernails scratching on a chalkboard continuously forever. Just like... This is, this is how the demons experience the presence of God, right? The presence of God is painful to them, not because he's mean, but because he's holy, and they have rebelled against his holiness. Um, secondly, Screwtape has some sort of consciousness of the universal invisible church, which the patient, the patient cannot see. The patient joins a church, 
All he sees is the people in the pew next to him. He doesn't see the invisible church. Right? But Screwtape does. And he says this to Wormwood. The church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners, that, I confess, is a spectacle that makes even our boldest tempters uneasy. It's a wonderful statement. <laughs> the, the invisible church. <clears throat> Something to think about next time we go to church and look at our neighbor in the pew. But Screwtape sees the state of the local church more clearly than the patient does also. He knows when a boring-looking old lady uh, in the church pew is actually a great warrior in the kingdom. And, of course, he wants the patient to remain unaware of this. He wants the patient to continue to look down on other Christians for stupid and superficial reasons, like their boots squeak, they smell funny, they wear tacky clothes. Get him to think about that. Think of them as ridiculous, because he doesn't actually see that maybe this person is uh, a warrior in God's kingdom. It's a little bit like the encounters that Jesus himself has with demons in the Gospels. Uh, They alone seem to have the clearest perception of who he is, his power and his authority, even though they hate him and they're terrified of him. People walk right by Jesus without even caring or noticing but the demons can see who he is, right? And it's a little bit like that. You see it in the screw tape letters. So these are some of the true observations that screw tapes makes. Uh, but he's also a total liar <laughs> at the same time. Uh, he says things that are not true. And uh, this is where the satire comes in. He's also a fool. A very intelligent fool. He delights in deceiving the patient, but he himself is deceived. And I think Lewis is sort of welcoming us to hold up what Screwtape says in light of Scripture and discern whether or not he's, he's telling the truth or not. And I think when we do this, we realize that Screwtape, for all his shrewdness, is an unreliable narrator. He's mockable. Unreliable narrator is kind of a, a um, literary technique of writing in the first person from a perspective but a perspective that isn't right. <laughs> it's the only voice in a story, but it's but it's also not reliable. It can't be trusted. And that's what's going on here. I'll give one example of what I mean. Uh, in chapter 4, Screwtape addresses what he calls the painful subject of prayer. And he begins by saying, the best option is for Wormwood to prevent the patient from praying altogether. But since he's just converted to Christianity, this is hard to do. He's probably going to pray... So plan B is to get him to think of prayer as manufacturing reverent feelings and to judge the success of each prayer based on whether he experiences those feelings. And don't get him to think about, like, if he's low on blood sugar, he, he feels bad. Don't, th- you know, don't, don't get him to think about obvious things like that. Get him to sort of measure his prayer life based on the, the emotions he can, himself can manufacture, right? That was like that was one of those moments of like, oh, I think I had to go on a walk after that page. <clears throat> How many of us are totally dependent on on feelings as as a as a litmus test for what's going on spiritually in our lives? It's like not necessarily accurate. <clears throat> okay, but if this fails, uh, last resort, Screwtape says the goal is to get him to pray to his misunderstandings of who God is. Get him to imagine God as an old man with a beard. Pray to that. Get him to make a weird shrine of meaningful objects and pray to that. 
Get him to unconsciously create a random composite image of God and pray to that. Uh, get him to recall weird pictures of Jesus that he's seen and pray to those. He doesn't, uh, Screwtape never says Jesus. He says, um, he says something about that, you know, uh, that the dis- disreputable episode known as the incarnation or something. He, he, he won't, he can't, he can't say it. Anyway. Um, but, but, you know, get, get the guy to pray to anything except who God really is. And in Screwtape's estimation, this renders the patient's prayers innocuous. And I think this is an example of the wishful thinking of hell, actually. Uh, when he's say, what he's saying is, unless our prayers are offered with complete and accurate theology, God will not hear them. Because technically speaking, we will not be talking to the God who is really there, but some imaginary creation of our own. So our theological misunderstandings render prayer useless. The call doesn't even get through to God. This is not true. This is not true. Screwtape radically underestimates the mercy and patience that God shows us when we pray to him in our ignorance, right? Uh, He radically underestimates God's eagerness to hear from his clueless children, right? God wants to hear from you and me. Uh, We may be utterly clueless, or at least partially clueless, about exactly who it is we're talking to, but he is eager to hear from us, even in our cluelessness, right? Um, Screwtape has no sense of the delight that God has when we make an effort to speak to him at all. Um, He forgets or he never realizes that God wants us to pray from wherever we are. And that actually often it's through prayer that we uh, begin to grow in good theology. So I think God receives prayer as to himself, even when our picture of him falls short of who he really is. Every prayer falls short of who God really is. If this was true, God wouldn't hear prayer ever, right? Uh, Which one of us can pray with a completely accurate understanding of who God is as we're praying? It's ridiculous. There would be no such thing as prayer if that was the case. The Holy Spirit is in us, though, and Christ is at the Father's side, continually making something acceptable out of our prayer. Think of how distracted I am when I pray, and I think of how I don't even know the mixed motivations I may have in my mind as I'm praying to the Lord. And yet the Holy Spirit is in me, and Christ is at the Father's side, making something of the chaos that I'm trying to say to God. Screwtape doesn't have a clue about any of this. Um, Although, in a really interesting, um, it's one of my favorite moments in the whole book, he does tell us the kind of prayer that he most fears. Which is ironically a clue as to the kind of prayer we should aim for, right? <laughs> right? And he says this, <clears throat> For if he, he's talking about the patient, for if he ever comes to make the distinction, if ever he consciously directs his prayers, not to what I think thou art, but to what thou knowest thyself to be, our situation is for the moment desperate. Once all his thoughts and images have been flung aside, or if retained, retained with a full recognition of their merely subjective nature, and the man trusts himself to the completely real, external, invisible presence there with him in the room, and never knowable by him as he is known by it, why, then it is that the incalculable might occur. Since he's... Um, 
in avoiding this situation, this real nakedness of the soul in prayer, you will be helped by the fact that the humans themselves do not desire it as much as they suppose. There's such a thing as getting more than they bargained for. So we may say that we deeply desire to see God clearly face to face, and maybe we don't totally mean that. That's what he's saying. Uh, to see God with absolute clarity face to face would perhaps undo us more than we think. <clears throat> but this is a good example of how the, how the demons are undone in the face of humility, basically. When we're just humble before God, the devil can't really do anything. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I love this, this idea of praying to not what I think thou art, but what thou knowest thyself to be. You know who you are, God. I sort of know who you are. I know some things. I, may, I might have some things wrong. Uh, but I want to be praying to you who are actually there and not to some misunderstanding. And God hears that. God hears that. And that's, um, that's when the situation is desperate from Screwtape's perspective. <clears throat> so this is the first layer of meaning. We're talking about two layers of meaning. Screwtape's own words. And we've seen that uh, we, even here we should tread lightly because it's a mixture of truth and lies, clarity and delusion. Right? That's the face. That's kind of the um, the face value read of the text. But there's also the second layer. Yep, which is Lewis's meaning. What is Lewis trying to say indirectly through the mouth of Screw Tape? And this is sort of a, the subtext. <clears throat> at least that's what I'm calling it. Uh, and both are going on at once. And this is sort of how satire functions. Works of satire usually say the opposite of the author's real beliefs, usually in a very exaggerated and absurd way. And remember, it's like a photographic negative, so the lights and the darks are reversed. But you can still discern the shapes with some effort, right? God is the object of all Screwtape's hatred and rage and dread. But through all of his bluster and his condescension and hostility and cruelty and superiority, all this stuff, a powerful picture of God, the enemy, slowly emerges. You start to get a picture of who God really is. We see hints of God's authority, of his love, of his mercy, of his providence. And we, and we see, increasingly, we see the firm grip that he actually has on his people. Screwtape would like to believe that God is this bumbling and like the devil actually has a chance to like to grab someone away from him. It's not the case as we see throughout the book. So these are these two layers going on, and the interplay between these two layers, it's really what makes the Screwtape letters so intriguing and delightful and, and creepy and um, disturbing and funny and all the things. There's a, a lot of power in what Lewis is doing here. Um, by speaking out of this sort of diabolical perspective, but actually communicating many of the things that he himself believes indirectly, never, never, never straightforward, um, straightforwardly. But I want to also talk about the metaphor that C.S. Lewis uses. Um, <clears throat> yeah, he, he um, to represent the demonic world, he chooses very particular imagery. And hell is basically a gigantic bureaucracy in what is basically a totalitarian police state. That's the closest thing. That's the, he says this about it himself, but just reading the text, you can see that this is the kind of imagery he's, he's created. The bureaucracy of Lewis's hell has research branches and propaganda branches, 
training colleges for young tempters, a house of corrections, it has a secret police, it has layer upon layer of departments and sub-departments and committees and subcommittees, all with head secretaries and undersecretaries and assistant undersecretaries passing files and dossiers back and forth, memos on desks. Uh, all its inhabitants take themselves very, very, very seriously. There's no humor at all in hell. There's certainly no ability to laugh at oneself because everybody takes themselves very, very seriously. There's no laughter at oneself. Screw tape could not abide to laugh at himself. Everyone is ready to stab everyone else in the back at a moment's notice to advance themselves. And everyone is terrified that they're the ones that are going to be stabbed in the back. It's a little bit like stories you hear about, about you know, uh, real totalitarian regimes, you know. Even maybe communist West uh, East Germany, you know, before the the wall fell, or um, it's just a it's just a mess. Um, hell in Lewis's bureaucracy is brutally hierarchical, but it's actually because it's hell, it's a lowerarchy. <laughs> uh, the more important a demon is, the lower they are. Um, and overall, it's just a place of relentless focus on on the self. Screwtape is angry and frustrated, but he's also pompous and overconfident all the time. Uh, he's basically a picture of what the Bible calls the fool. He's convinced of his own autonomy and self-sufficiency in everything. But why the image of a bureaucracy? Why does why does Lewis run with this? He could have done something different. And there's a he's written quite thoughtfully on this. <clears throat> Lewis did not want to trivialize evil by using sort of common cultural tropes to portray hell. Like the horns and the pitchforks and the, and the red tights, fork tails, bats, caves with fire in them, whatever it is, these, these kind of stereotypes. He rejects this kind of imagery because he thinks it fails to communicate the true nature of evil, just how awful and miserable and joyless it is. Screwtape is a bureaucrat in a suit in an office with a secretary and a stack of boring memos to get through. That's, that's, that's um, in the introduction to his 1961 edition, he writes a really interesting whole preface. Uh, and he writes this. Keep in mind, this is, um, is post-World War II Europe and a lot of the atrocities that had happened all throughout Europe um, committed by the Nazis during World War II. Uh, were being exposed and had been exposed. <clears throat> so Lewis says this, I like bats much better than bureaucrats. I live in a managerial age, in a world of admin. The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime that Dickens loved to paint. It is not done even in concentration camps and labor camps. In those we see its final result. But it is conceived and ordered, moved, seconded, carried, and minuted in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth-shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voice. So this is totally reminiscent of, of um, this phrase that Hannah Arendt uh, came up with, the banality of evil. She wrote a book in 1963, just... Uh, two years later, uh, called Eichmann in Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil. So Adolf Eichmann was a Nazi uh, administrator. 
completely ordinary, unsensational little businessman who was eventually uh, captured and brought to stand trial for his crimes um, under the Nazi regime. Uh, but this little ordinary, unsensational, boring little man was responsible for orchestrating the deaths of millions and millions of people from his desk. There's nothing sensational or monstrous about this guy. He's just a boring little guy, right? And yet that's what evil looks like in, rea- in reality so often. <clears throat> so it's like Lewis and Hannah Arendt got together and like <laughs> talked about this. I don't know if they did, but... <clears throat> As we all know, uh, Lewis had a profound understanding of Western literature, and one of his critiques was that so many works, including Milton's Paradise Lost, for one, in his view, portray the devil as kind of interesting and suave and cool. He's a stylish gentleman, he's polite, he's intriguing. Uh, the devil, as he is portrayed in a lot of literature, does not repulse us, but appeals to us aesthetically. Even if we don't agree with his morals, there's something aesthetically intriguing about him. Um, Even worse, the devil has sometimes been thought of as being sympathetic to the plight of humans under God's authoritarian rule, sort of like Prometheus in the myth. Because the devil is flawed, he can somehow, he can relate to us more easily than God can. God is holy and distant and he's, he's judging, not the devil though, the devil gets it. Uh, according to Lewis, Goethe did the most damage of all uh, in, uh, in Faust through the character of Mephistopheles. I haven't even read Faust, so just don't ask me any questions about this. Uh, but this is Lewis. He says, the humorous, civilized, sensible, adaptable Mephistopheles has helped to strengthen the illusion that evil is liberating. Hence, people are given the impression that shaking free of God is somehow the way to freedom. This is an absolute lie. <laughs> um, the fantasy writer Philip Pullman has kind of run with that idea. He sort of believes that. Um, and, he, and consequently, he despises Lewis's writing. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but these kinds of images of hell and the devil have done spiritual damage, says Lewis, in that they reverse the true natures of good and evil in people's minds. And Lewis does not want to repeat the same mistake and mislead people into thinking that freedom or fun of any kind is to be found in hell. So he intentionally chose the most joy-sucking imagery he could think of for hell, which was just dreary, tedious, boring, soul-destroying, pencil-pushing, meaningless, unfulfilling, cubicle job. Uh, extending for all eternity. That's, that's, what, that's what he wants you to think about. <laughs> uh, he chooses bureaucracy because symbolically the idea is so unappealing. Think of like being stuck in the DMV forever or, uh, I don't know, the IRS forever. <clears throat> He's doing the opposite of renovating an image of evil. He's trying to sully it and sort of downgrade it back to where it should be in our minds. <laughs> like this is nothing, nothing enjoyable about this, nothing appealing. Uh, as my title implies, fear and hunger are the only two motivators in the bureaucracy. In hell, there is only power, and the weak get absorbed into the strong, which is a very Nietzschean idea. The weak fear the strong, and the strong hunger for the weak. There's a little bit of a taste of it here, of the, of the kinds of threats that Screwtape throws around. He says, you may be interested to learn, he's referring to, you know, uh, Wormwood tried to get him in trouble, you know, 
in some attempt to advance his position. You may be interested to learn that the little misunderstanding with the secret police which you tried to raise about some unguarded expressions in one of my letters has been tided over. If you are reckoning on that to secure my good offices, you will find yourself mistaken. You shall pay for that as well as for your other blunders. Meanwhile, I enclose a little booklet just issued on the new house of correction for incompetent tempters. It is profusely illustrated and you will not find a dull page in it. This is the kind of, you know, office banter uh, that happens. Uh, so as well as fear, hell is a bureaucracy of hunger. Hell has nothing to give. It has nothing to pour out. It's essentially a vacuum. It can only suck in and consume and keep hungering. This is, I've actually read this passage to our students at lunch this Wednesday. Um, and this is one, again, one of my, one of my other favorite passages. Uh, where you see the difference between the Lord and, and the devil sort of emerge in, in quite a powerful way. To us, a human is primarily, it's supposed to say food, not good. That's a, that's a terrible typo. Uh, to us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our Father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. See, I, I can't help read that with a move by how awesome God is in this, but really, I should read that with disgust. Because this kind of thing just makes screw tape so bad. I hate it. Um, so we get a beautiful picture of God's intentions for humanity. Uh, even if screw tape is like smoking out of the ears when he says it, right? He hates it. Uh, but by portraying hell as hungry and never satisfied, Lewis is getting at something profound about the nature of evil. Evil has no identity of its own. The nature of evil is that it has no positive nature. It's vacuous. Screwtape illustrates this really, really well. Um, he has no principles whatsoever. He doesn't stand for anything except to resist God. He's solely practical. He doesn't have a philosophy or something. You know, he's, he's just practical. What do we do to resist God in everything? His entire identity is negation. All he can do is undermine or twist or undo what God has done. He can't produce anything. There's no positive content for hell to convey. Um, there's a number of ways in which Lewis shows this. 
uh, over and over again throughout the letters, he says this, something like this. Uh, Find out what the enemy wants to do and do the opposite. (laughs) This kind of sums up the whole book. Just figure out what God is up to and then just just do the other thing. You know, do the opposite. Um, Not from any, like, belief in what the right thing to do is. It's just pure negation. The very first letter begins and ends like this. These are kind of the the, uh, the bookends of the first chapter. I think it's it, it's it also gives you a hint of where we're going here. My dear Wormwood, I note what you say about guiding your patient's reading and taking care that he sees a good deal of his materialist friend. But are you not being a trifle naive? It sounds as if you suppose that argument was the way to keep him out of the enemy's clutches. He goes on, he talks about a bunch of stuff, and then he, he ends like this. But the best of all is to let him read no science, but give him a grand general idea that he knows it all, and that everything he happens to have picked up in casual talk and reading is the results of modern investigation. Do remember you are there to fuddle him. From the way some of you young fiends talk, anyone would suppose it was our job to teach. Your affectionate uncle Screwtape. You're there to fuddle him, not to teach. The entire book plays that out. Screwtape has no truth to teach. He doesn't try to make sense to the patient. He has no interest in making sense to the patient. He doesn't want the patient to know he's there. Uh, there's no sound arguments to make in hell's defense. And there's, there's no alternative philosophy that he's presenting. Uh, all he can do is lie and confuse and cover up real things. That's all he's doing. So Screwtape's only hope is to get the human to endlessly chase his own tail, to turn him inward on himself until he cannot make contact with any reality, least of all God. And we'll talk about that a lot more in the subsequent lectures. And actually, he knows, Screwtape knows that arguments potentially awaken the patient's rationality, which is very dangerous, in that it shifts the battle onto God's ground. <laughs> God invented the human mind. You don't want to get this guy thinking clearly about anything, otherwise, actually, God will be able to speak to him. It reminds me of one of the things that Francis Schaeffer said, which is, uh, again, this is a paraphrase, but uh, if the world had more critical thinkers, there would be more Christians. So through these passages and many others, Lewis shows that evil is parasitic. It only exists as a contradiction of what is real. Good is not dependent on evil for its existence. Good has always been. God has always been. But evil is dependent on good for its existence. And because evil is parasitic, hell should never be considered heaven's equal opposite kingdom. There's not two kingdoms at war here. Uh, hell isn't a kingdom. It's a holding cell. It's actually a mark of the self-deception of hell that the devil thinks his jail cell is a kingdom. This is self-deception at its height. Neither is the devil God's equal opposite, like his counterpart in hell. God has always existed the devil has not. There's no symmetry in the in the battle here. Um, Lewis says uh, somewhere he says that um, the devil is nothing more than a fallen servant of God, and if there's any counterpart in heaven, it would be the archangel Michael, not God. God and the devil aren't like going at it head to head. So the living God is and will always be unrivaled, which is our hope. This is you know, hallelujah. He's unrivaled. <clears throat> Screwtape's most deadly flaw, and, and uh, I want to spend a lot of time in the next lecture talking about this, but his most deadly flaw is his complete inability 
to comprehend self-giving love. It just jams his mind. It, all his cynical categories cannot make sense of it. Because he can only be motivated by brutal self-interest. He cannot conceive of God being any other way. He doesn't understand it. Uh, he's blind to that which is obvious to any little child that knows God loves them. Or any little child that knows their parents love them. So in this sense, he's the ultimate fool. He just, he, he just, he's incapable of comprehending love that isn't self-serving in some obvious way. So he's always trying to figure out, well, that person seems to be loving that other person, but what are they getting out of it? They have to be getting something out of it because nobody would do that. And so he's, his cynicism, in a sense, makes him stupid. To, he makes him clueless to, to, um, to the essence of who God is. <clears throat> so I want to encourage you, this is my conclusion here, I want to encourage you to read or reread the screw tape letters. Uh, I told you that on my first reading, I was, I found it very disconcerting. Um, I felt like a sitting duck, like I was under surveillance, and uh, any good intention I happen to have would be twisted and corrupted. Um, don't let this discourage you, even if this is how you feel the first time you read it. Uh, as the letters progress, I think you see that the, the demons lose ground in the battle over this man. Uh, you begin to sense that their entire campaign is just full of fatal cracks, <laughs> and it's futile, and they don't see it until the very end. That's a bit of a spoiler alert, but God wins in the end, so... <laughs> um, yeah, they, they, he continues to hold on to this idea that he can outmaneuver God with more research. They'll figure out a way. Um, the more times I've read it, though, the more hopeful a book it's become for me. And I've read it many times, but it becomes more and more hopeful, partly because I'm more able to recognize Screwtape's absurdity. I'm more able to recognize the, sort of the, the, how mockable he is. Uh, but also partly because of the indirect negative image of God, I think has come into focus for me more and more. That indirect way, the subtext of what Lewis is saying about who God is. Screwtape is appalled at and horrified by God's patience and generosity, but we uh, can read his rantings and actually be grateful for these attributes of God <laughs> that he's describing. Um, I've actually, in, in a funny way, appreciated the goodness of God in, in fresh ways because it's filtered through Screwtape's twisted mind. <laughs> the, way he, the way he gets angry at these things, it, it actually makes them come, come to light a little bit more for me. I want to end with an example that demonstrates what I mean here. This chapter is just too good not to read. Uh, basically, almost the whole chapter. They're very short. Um, but it's one of the funniest moments, I think, in the Screwtape Letters. It's an example of Lewis encouraging us to, to mock the devil. And just, a, just a, uh, an aside. It's not really an aside. It's an important point. Um, mocking, mocking the devil is not something we just do flippantly, in a sense. Um, the devil can be mocked because... Uh, Jesus has defeated him, and, and we are in Christ. <laughs> it, the, the, the mockery is something you can only do from the place of being of being in Christ. It's in terms of the confidence that we have, um, and the the uh, the lack of fear we can have. <clears throat> anyway, um, this chapter takes place when Screwtape discovers that the patient has fallen in love. And, of course, he gets the woman, the young woman's dossier immediately. 
and he's looking through the file, and he's, he finds out that she's a God-fearing saint. You know? And he throws a, a diabolical hissy fit, uh, in which all his pseudo-dignity and gravitas evaporates, and he ends up turning into a giant centipede. Um, and uh, so this is, I'm just going to close by reading this. This is in the spirit of mocking the devil, but also in the spirit of laying hold of God's goodness. I think we see both in this chapter in a, in a beautiful way. And I'm not going to put it on the screen because I want you just to listen to it. And I'll, I'll try to read it clearly. My dear Wormwood, so your man is in love. And in the worst kind he could possibly have fallen into. And with a girl who does not even appear in the report you sent me. I have looked up the girl's dossier and I am horrified at what I find. Not only a Christian, but such a Christian. A vile, sneaking, simpering, demure, monosyllabic, mouse-like, watery, insignificant, virginal, bread-and-butter miss. The little brute, she makes me vomit. She stinks and scalds through the very pages of the dossier. It drives me mad the way the world has worsened. We'd have had her in the arena in the old days. That's what her sword is made for. Not that she'd do much good there either. A two-faced little cheat, I know the sort, who looks as if she'd faint at the sight of blood and then dies with a smile. A cheat every way. Looks as if butter won't melt in her mouth and yet has a satirical wit. The sort of creature who'd find me funny. (laughs) Filthy, insipid little prude. And yet, ready to fall into this booby's arms like any other breeding animal. Why doesn't the enemy blast her for it if he's so moonstruck by virginity instead of looking on there grinning? He's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade or only or only like the foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in his sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. He makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't, I don't think he has the least inkling of that high and austere mystery to which we rise in the miserific vision. He's vulgar, Wormwood. He has a bourgeois mind. He has filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Not that that excuses you. I'll settle you presently. You have always hated me and have been insolent when you dared. Then, of course, he gets to know this woman's family and the whole circle. Could you not see that the very house she lives in is one that he ought never to have entered? The whole place reeks of that deadly odor. The very gardener, though he's only been there five years, is beginning to acquire it. Even guests after a weekend visit carry some of the smell away with them. The dog and the cat are tainted with it. (laughs) And a house full of the impenetrable mystery. Which is what? Love. (laughs) He doesn't understand it. The, The house is full with the impenetrable mystery. We are certain, it is a matter of first principles, that each member of the family must in some way be making capital out of the others. But we can't, we can't find out how. They guard as jealously as the enemy himself the secret of what really lies behind this pretense of disinterested love. 
The whole house and garden is one vast obscenity that bears a sickening resemblance to the description one human writer made of heaven. The regions where there is only life and therefore all that is not music is silence. Music and silence. How I detest them both. How thankful we should be that ever since our father entered hell, the longer ago than humans reckoning in light years could express no square inch of infernal space and no moment of infernal time has been surrendered to either of those abominable forces, music and silence. But all has been occupied by noise, noise, the great dynamism, the audible expression of all that is exultant, ruthless and virile. Noise, which alone defends us from silly qualms, despairing scruples and impossible desires. We will make the whole universe a noise in the end. We have already made great strides in this direction as regards the earth. The melodies and silences of heaven will be shouted down in the end. But I admit that we are not loud enough yet, or anything like it. Research is in progress. Meanwhile, you disgusting little... And here the message breaks off and is resumed in a different hand. In the heat of composition, I find that I have inadvertently allowed myself to assume the form of a large centipede. I am accordingly dictating the rest to my secretary. Now that the transformation is complete, I recognize it is a periodical phenomenon. Some rumor of it has reached the humans, and a distorted account of it appears in the poet Milton, with a ridiculous, ridiculous addition that such changes of shape are punishment imposed on us by the enemy. A more modern writer, someone with the name like Pshaw, <laughs> has however grasped the truth. Transformation proceeds from within and is a glorious manifestation of that life force which our father would worship if he worshipped anything but himself. In my present form, I feel even more anxious to see you, to unite you to myself in an indissoluble embrace. Signed, Toadpipe, for his abysmal sublimity under Secretary Scrutiny. That's the end. <laughs> that's not the end of the book, that's the end of my lecture. Um, so for those of you who are new to Labrie Lectures, we like to just take time to sit and, and discuss the topic. Uh, if there are questions, that's great. If there are um, comments, and I don't know how... You've got the noise on the screen there. Yeah, I know. That was interesting, isn't it? I'm going to do that. Um, but yeah, if you have questions or things you want to discuss, um, that would be fun. Yeah. I'm kind of wondering what you would think about the difference between Luther's approach to confronting the devil mm -hmm. and C.S. Lewis. They seem to be at odds, but maybe they are kind of two sides mm. of the same coin. Could you say more about what you mean? How, how do you see them being at so odds? Luther's quote was kind of call him a liar, confront him. It was much more combative and, and aggressive even. Mm. Um, Lewis's seems to be a little bit more of humility kind of turning away, almost a turning the other cheek, so to speak, not confronting. <clears throat> and so I'm wondering, you mentioned, you know, call him a liar, the Bible calls him a liar, but from a position of within Christ, mm -hmm. you know, are those two positions, Lewis and Luther, essentially the same thing, two different expressions of a kind of confrontation in Christ? Hmm. That's a really good question. I'm not sure. <clears throat> I haven't thought of that. Um, I don't, I mean, just intuitively, I don't see them as being at, totally at odds with each other. Um, 
I mean, it, in a sense, Lewis's whole whole approach in this Critique of Letters is, is is in a sense a confrontation. It's 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 just mocking, you know, um, and po- pointing out the lies and the folly that that evil actually is. Um, uh, yeah, did you have a, a comment there, Well, I just wonder. I, I what occurred to me immediately, which may not really answer the question, but. They wrote this to such totally different cultures. Yeah. Luther's by people who live in the devil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lewis is writing at a time when, when one of the devil's greatest victories is that people will stop believing in mm-hmm. So I just wonder whether, I don't know whether that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's definitely true. I mean, and Screwtape even talks about that in some of the chapters. At different at different ages, the. the the battle plan is totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you approach it totally differently. Yeah? Another factor might be that, well, the verse you quoted that submit to God, resist the enemy, and he will flee. Yeah. When I personally am being attacked, I can do that for me. But if I'm ministering to somebody else, how I resist the enemy is going to be con- confrontational to the enemy mm. and using the authority that Christ gave me to contend mm. for the freedom of this mm. other person. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And Peter? Uh, this idea of mockery, I understand it. Some of it I find a little bit disturbing because uh, it seems so uh, Lewis is somewhat following Augustine's idea of evil as being the perversion of the good. Mm-hmm. And if that's true, there is still the imago dei mm-hmm. found within the devil. Mm-hmm. How do well, we... the devil is not a human being. Human beings are the imago dei. But it's still a created being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> this is above my pay grade. Um, but um, it's 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 definitely not the. I mean the the even the angels that haven't fallen aren't the Imago Dei. <laughs> uh, Imago Dei is as unique to human beings, uh, and and actually the Imago Dei is probably what uh, why the devil hates people so much. <laughs> and so um, there's. It's interesting. Lewis's portrayal of Screwtape—he makes Screwtape into a a Platonist, into someone who's very, very—he's uh, a purist about being p- a pure spirit. Mm. He's disgusted by physical reality. He's disgusted that these humans have bodies. They're a disgusting little um, amphibian, you know, part spirit, part part body, and uh, he thinks that God degraded himself as a spirit when he made physical people, and even more when he took on flesh himself, it's just the, the ultimate, so he's really, he's like a Gnostic kind of like, despiser of, of, of uh, everything to do with, with people, um, and that's, and that's really like the main difference, I mean, that, that's a, a difference between what a human being is and an angel is, you know, an angel is a spirit, it doesn't have, a, doesn't have a physical body in space and time, uh, we do, and that was God's choice, and that's a glorious thing. Um, and uh, the way the way Lewis portrays it is 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 the physicality of, of humans disgusts the devil. <laughs> but even so, evil does not exist absolutely. 
and so there has to be some remnant of, of the God given. In the I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. I I think there's good grounds biblically to 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 to, to view the devil as completely separated from God, and, and the, the hell is is by definition separation from God. Um, but do you mean are you get, are you asking the question? Well, in what sense can something be separated from God, who actually is the only one that sustains anything? Well, is that I what you're asking? It, it's more the, the Manichaean argument that uh-huh. you know two absolutes cannot exist, hmm. and so the only absolute being God. Hmm. So everything else is sort of derivative. Yeah. And uh, and so you know, I I don't want to press the point, but, mm-hmm. but I'm just thinking, you know, to what degree does, to, to, to use a gentleman's term, uh, turning the cheek, um, mm-hmm. you know, to which do we pray for those who are uh, uh, you know, what are the limits of our prayers mm-hmm. for redeeming, reconciling and things like mm-hmm. that? Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> I think for people there should be no limits of our prayers because we have no idea <laughs> where people are before God, and so we just we just pray. Um, in terms of whether the devil is somehow redeemable because there's some germ of goodness left in him or something like that, I I don't think the Bible encourages us to think that way at all. Um, it may be sort of a, a philosophical abstraction to think of it in that way, uh, and and I think when there's philosophical abstractions that make these conundrums for us. It's really good to put our feet firmly in Scripture and say, well, what does Scripture actually teach about this? Um, and I think Scripture teaches the devil is just like permanently in rebellion against God. He's chosen a different way. And um, there's different people that have written different... I mean, I know George MacDonald sort of wrote some fantasy literature that kind of questions whether, you know, there's some redemption possible. Uh, very much out of a desire to show God as like the ultimate forgiving Lord um, and yet <clears throat> at some point or other um, God honors the choice <laughs> and, and you can't redeem someone who has who was eternally chosen to hate God um, and that's I think that's the picture the Bible gives us of Satan um, but yeah I don't know again that this is this is a, a book over my head in a lot of ways. Are there any other comments on this topic that anyone wants to make? Or? Yeah, I was yeah. kind of, you know, wrestling along the same line. So, um, how did the devil come to be? I mean, you, you talk about him as a fallen servant. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to give, like, a rational argument for, like, why he made the choice he made. <laughs> I mean, the the and the, again, the, and the Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail. Um, there's in, in that passage in Ezekiel, and then some of the things that Jesus says. There's this uh, um, teaching that he's he's an angel and that his that was proud. But I don't know. Then the question becomes. Well, where did that pride originate? If God created everything, there was going to, I mean, it's, it, it becomes a little bit of a, a never-ending 
feedback loop. Um, and I don't always know. I mean, and to me, it's an interesting question to ponder for a while, and then I'm like, I'm not sure how productive and, and meaningful it is to, to try to find a satisfying answer to that, because um, I'm not sure we'll, we'll find it. Um, sometimes we are trying to find something that will make sense of it to us, and it's intrinsically nonsense. Yes. <laughs> it's not going to make sense, uh, it, because it's, it's, it's falling. Um, but, yeah, so, uh, Someone had a God hand allows yeah. the devil to exist. Would you agree with that? Uh, for the time being, yeah. Yeah. That's that is that's true. It, but it's not. Um, you could frame that in such a way that it's just a, a philosophical argument, and then say, "Well, what is God up to anyway? Um, if he's good and he's powerful, and he could he could obliterate the devil right now." Um, but I think when we, whenever we have a question like that, it's we really need to steer away from the abstract question and, and say, what does the, the narrative of Scripture tell us? And what it tells us is this is this is temporary, and that actually that the, the God is in the process and has already actually defeated the devil, and and one day that will be completely fulfilled, and the devil will have, I don't know, I, I again I'm, I'm over my head when it comes to the. Um, yeah, th- th- this exactly how we can explain all of it, but <clears throat> the Bible is very, very clear. You think of the imagery in Revelation of the city, uh, and the gates are wide open all the time. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a city with hugely thick walls, as if there's going to be some great attack on it, and yet the gates are open day and night. Because why? Because there's no evil out there anymore to invade. <laughs> it's a picture of evil being gone forever. Uh, and and so that's if we're bothered by the fact that God allows the devil to exist, we have to we have to take that. And it's, and it's not a bad it's not a bad question. It's, it's it's it should bother us. And yet we need to take that to the story, and and reflect on where in the story we are. Um, and then have faith and hope in the end of the story. But, yeah? Uh, <clears throat> not to answer that question, but um, I think something, an example you brought up from Scripture that comes to mind in terms of trying to just understand what was happening there is Job and kind of the permission that God gives him to, God gives the devil to um, affect his life. Mm-hmm. And how that in the end, although if we were to stop the story from at that point, we would mm-hmm. try to understand like, why is this happening, but in the end, kind of the lesson that Job ends up kind of learning from the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, there are things in the world that I think are too painful to kind of say that there is always some, you know, moral lesson that there might be, but mm-hmm. we might not know. But I think, yeah. to your point, kind of creating space that there is a limit to what we see mm-hmm. as there's a limit to what the devil can see mm-hmm. that God might be working mm-hmm. through the devil, the devil, the devil, the devil so. that's very true I mean the whole the whole central event of the Christian faith is the, is the crucifixion of Christ which is in a sense the most wicked evil <laughs> historical event ever to have taken place in terms of the injustice of it and the corruption of it um, but that's precisely what 
what God does. Like he, he, it doesn't, he, he takes the worst things and somehow works them out so that redemption happens. And that doesn't give us license to go back and then say all those bad things were good. And it certainly doesn't give us license to try to interpret everything bad that happens in the world and be like, oh, well, that must have happened because of this and this and this. We just don't. That's hubris. That's We're not supposed to do that because we will get it wrong. But um, but at the very least, we need to uh, we need to affirm that this is the kind of thing God does. You know, he can t- he can works all things together for the good of those who call it. You know, that doesn't mean all things are good, but it does mean he can take anything and bring good out of it. And um, yeah, any other? Yeah, um, in mere Christianity, one of the foundational, you know, his apologetics kind of built on the foundation of absolute truth, right? He mm-hmm. starts there and says, this is who God is, and this, you know, this is my position. And I, I really enjoyed how you, um, you know, kind of work through anytime absolute truth shows up in screw tape, it's, it's, it's true, like, you know, when he, when he talks about, you know, God and who he is and, mm-hmm. and how, you know, how, how despicable it is, you know, but it's really painting a picture of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, and then he always seems to work in corrupting the truth. That's his aim mm-hmm. to, to pervert or corrupt and, and, and bring away. So, what do you think Screwtape would make of our this current generation of the internet and social networks and, and just fake news, right? And, and this is idea. Like, do you think he would mm-hmm. really dig into kind of this present darkness, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Of, you know, what is happening in the world and how easy it is to corrupt something for your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the things that Screwtape is, a lot of the tactics that he has in the book would be just all the more easy to pull off now (laughs) than in the 1940s in terms of the distractions that are available to us from anything real. Um, And the isolation and depression that so many people experience and and are just desperately looking for any distraction from from what's real. And yeah, I mean I think that there's I think that there's um this I mean this is one of the reasons why the book is so relevant today. You read it and it, all the the exact examples of things he's talking about are, are dated, but like the concepts are not dated at all. You're like, oh my gosh, this is yeah. Um he talks about a guy who was studying in the library and he noticed that the guy's mind was heading in a dangerous direction, meaning he was starting to consider God's reality maybe in a new way. And so, and he was like, wow, this is really important. And then Screwtape was on the ball and said, yes, it's much too important to think about right now. Go out, have some lunch. Go out, you know, approach approach this question about God's existence on a full stomach. Make sure, you know. And he basically just throws a bunch of distractions at the guy and gets him off in a different direction and he never thinks about God. <laughs> it's just, it's pretty horrifying. But, um, yeah, I think the way in which we welcome unreality in so many different ways, I think is exactly the kind of thing he's encouraging. Um, and, yeah. Or we welcome reality that mimics or is going to echo what we want to believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so he doesn't, he doesn't want the patient to think about what's true or not. He wants the patient to to just affirm whatever seems cool or sophisticated. Um, he doesn't even want him to uh, e- experience the things he enjoys. He doesn't want him to read a book he likes. 
he wants him to read a book that will make him feel smart to his friends. So he's trying to separate him from reality in every way, not just not just like absolute truth reality, but even the reality of his own loves and desire and tastes. Don't don't let him take a walk that he likes. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> um, get him to do everything because he's impressing somebody else. Get him to abandon his friends that he actually really loves for cooler friends, you know. Uh, and that way, you're actually separating him from himself, not just from God. You're 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 fracturing him um, and uh, getting him to just become a total fake, but not notice that what he's, that's what he's doing. So all along, no matter what Screwtape is trying to do, you, you know, you never want to tip your hand and show him what you're actually doing to him. You want him to just remain, you know, just utterly bewildered all the time. So, so does Screwtape yeah. want someone to come up with their own version of God as well? Sure. Anything, anything that oh, <laughs> uh, anything that distracts them from from God Himself. So does that come back to kind of like you know we don't have this perfect view of God doctrinally? Like we have an incomplete view. Mm-hmm. He wants us to come up with something that's like so incomplete. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. get anywhere closer, that's wrong. Yeah. I mean that that this is a sort of a caveat to what I was saying. But you know, I wasn't saying that it just doesn't matter what we think about God when we're praying to Him. Actually, it actually really does matter. We should try to, um, yeah, we should try to pray to, to the God who's actually there, consciously. <laughs> and actually, having really bad theology does it, it can damage our life. If we have bad theology, we might not, might not even want to approach God because we think He's so. There's all kinds of ways in which. Thinking rightly about God matters in prayer. Um, absolutely, but um, the point I was trying to make there was was um, that if somehow in our attempts to seek God, we have all kinds of wrong pictures in our head, it's not as if the real God who's there can't hear us. Then you know, as if we, He's inaccessible to us you know, because we haven't somehow thought rightly enough. <laughs> or, yeah, I don't know if that gets at your question. I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Yes. Just touching. I just find it very interesting. I can't remember the metaphor that C.S. Lewis created here, but it's the one maybe you can tell it of like we're like two year olds. He's like assuming like we're believers, mm-hmm. and you know you've got the Bible and all the truth is there. And your life could be just totally different, but we're happy and making mud pies, mm-hmm. and and God is inviting us to the seashore. But we can't, we don't yeah. understand yeah. that it's the seashore because we're only like two years old. Yeah, we've only experienced mud puddles in the slums, and yeah. so we don't even that's know what it's like yet. It's, that's, it's from the weight of glory. Yeah. He's, he's, say, he's making the point that our desires are too weak, not too strong. And we're not, we're not, sometimes we think that desire is this risky thing that'll lead us away from God because we think of sin and lust and desires are somehow bad. You've got to like crush them down. To be spiritual, and he's saying, actually, we're much too easily pleased. Our desires are too weak. We think we think a mud puddle is a great time, just because we have no idea what what vacation at the seaside would be like, right? And so that's he's getting it, trying to get at that. It's very similar to some of the things that he's implying in the screw tape letters about great divorce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Divorce too real. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. Heaven is huge and much too real (laughs) for for people who aren't accustomed to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, 
just on the multiple gods thing, it's, it fits into the whole biblical notion of idols are yeah. God substitutes yeah. uh, and lead you away from God. Mm-hmm. And, and the main thing about an idol is that it enables you to maintain your autonomy, mm-hmm. to have everything go your way, to be able to decide what's real and what isn't real, mm-hmm. and then call it God who will satisfy all my needs. Mm-hmm. And, and if that's if, and that, that's what's what's going on there yep. Yep. Uh, in the first century and, and today is going on without uh, just norms and multiplicity of violence changing all the time yeah. uh, to fly in and out of our lives mm-hmm. which, which are God substitutes they're not anywhere near mm-hmm. God but they, they fool us they yeah. deceive us they uh, make us satisfied with the sort of illusions that he's talking about. Yeah. Yeah, but never, you know, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I was thinking along the same lines, but um, <coughs> one of the biggest delusions and, and lies and temptations of the devil is it has been that of individual freedom, mm-hmm. and which obviously has a good side to it, but, but, where it's led our culture is to a loss of community, a loss of, of committed relationships, because my freedom will be, will be, I'll lose, I'll give up some of my freedom if I commit to this marriage or if I commit mm-hmm. to a friendship yeah. um, long term or if I commit to this uh, religious community, yeah. if I commit to this church, if I commit to this, any number of different religious communities that used to be mm-hmm. these these smaller voluntary associations that, we, that used to made up so much of what our democracy, mm-hmm. power and strength of democracy, mm-hmm. and but the result being very much what Satan would desire, which is loneliness, mm-hmm. depression, and what they call now deaths of despair, mm-hmm. opiate crisis, and yeah. so on, that, that, that so often is the result of, of the idolatry of, free, of individual freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because... Actually, loving other people and being bound together with other people is is intrinsically to limit your freedom. If if your idea of freedom is autonomous, uh, no limitations on my choices, right? Mm-hmm. And that that's a very modern idea of what freedom is. Freedom, you know, fr- true freedom can only be me in the world with no limitations on my choice, right? And that's a total lie as to what freedom actually is because it. It doesn't take into account that we're finite creatures and we actually only thrive within certain parameters because we were made to function within certain parameters. So it's, I think it was Tim Keller who said something about how, like, yeah, the idea of freedom being no boundaries at all is like saying, you know, taking a fish out of the ocean and putting it on the beach and saying, look, you're free, you can go anywhere. It's like, well, no. The, there, there's there's certain parameters within which a fish is really quite free in the water, swim all over the place. Um, but if you have a notion that that freedom is no boundaries whatsoever, it's just you just die. <laughs> you're you're uh, you you don't thrive. Um, and that that's been a helpful image to me. Just 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 the um the lie of, of, of what freedom is today. And, and Chesterton's really good on this too. Somewhere, I don't know, remember where it is, but he, he's talking about the idea of free love. 
this was long before the 60s, but free love is a total ridiculous idea. He says, like, love is never free. Love, the very nature of love is to bind yourself to somebody. But the idea of free love doesn't make sense at all. Like, love, if it's actually love, uh, is to bind yourself to somebody, which is to give up your freedom. Not all of it, uh, some of it, and then there's a different sort of freedom that can grow from that. But, um, yeah. But that, yeah, but, but you're right. Total freedom in the modern sense is, is, uh, absolute isolation. It's like, it's like the song, Let It Go. So no, no rules, no, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'm alone on the hillside in the ice storm. No, none of my responsibilities matter to me anymore. I am so free. You know, and, uh, it doesn't play out that way in the end, right? Um, yeah. Kind of the antithesis to the Bob Dylan song, you gotta serve somebody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. No, exactly, yeah. It's true. Um, it's actually, y'all should go and read The Great Divorce again too if you haven't read The Great Divorce, because that's a picture of freedom in hell, mm-hmm. which is basically, hell is, this is a different image of hell. It's not the bureaucracy, but it's a gray town that's never dark quite yet. But it's not light either. It's just overcast and rainy like it is today, basically. But but just like right before dusk all the time. And nobody gets along with anybody else. And so you just move further and further away from everybody else. And you're, and you're free because the moment you want a house to be somewhere else, it just appears. There's no work. You don't have to, you know, you, you just you just move further and further away from everybody else because everybody is irritable and everybody hates each other. And gradually... The great town expands and expands and expands and expands. The people that have been there the longest are light years away on their own, just cogitating on all the things that they're angry about, you know, for all eternity. And it's just terrifying. It's, it's the, you know, during life you might have been a grumbler, but in hell it's that continued on for eternity. There's no more person grumbling, you're just a grumble. And that's, and that's what it is. It's basically, Whatever path you chose in life, that continued. And uh, horrifying. It's in a sense much. It's, t- it's it's much scarier than any fire and brimstone like kind of hell. It's like oh, like they go out. Someone t- makes a journey that takes them years and years and years to go out to the mansion where Napoleon is. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis goes out on a limb and guesses that Napoleon is in hell. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, you know they go and they 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 watch him for a little. They watch him for a couple of years in his dining room, pacing back and forth, blaming all his generals. You know, and then they go back to where they came from. And it's like, oh, um, but that's the. I think it's in the Great Divorce that he says, um, and this is like this gets back to the either or nature of reality. There's two kinds of people. Um, there's the people who say to God, Thy will be done. And then there's the people to whom God says, Thy will be done. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference. <laughs> and um, and it's, it's terrifying. It's, that's that's the, the choice. Um, but that's a picture of freedom, right? That's a picture of total freedom. People in the gray town can do whatever they want. They can, they can have a new mansion a hundred miles away, you know? And... and uh, 
But it's, t- yeah, it's, it's, your humanity is destroyed. And also the freedom to leave, right? <laughs> they can't, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the whole story of the great divorce is that there's like a bus trip of people that go to the outskirts of heaven, and they theoretically have this choice where they could mm-hmm. continue on, yeah. or they could go back. And, um, yeah, they're, they're, and there's people that come from heaven to try to convince each person, you should stay, you know. Um, but it's, it's, very few of them can. So in a sense, they're they're free, but they're not. I mean, they, a choice could be made, but their freedom has been really um, limited. It's very hard for any, for any of them to make that choice. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, Debbie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can see you perfectly well. Yeah, I just didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> saying that yeah that's really helpful um i hope i I'm, i apologize if it seemed like i was kind of brushing aside the problem of evil as a legitimate question um it's a totally legitimate question i think sometimes as an abstraction a philosophical abstraction it's it's not as helpful because it's actually such a personal question <laughs> because almost almost everybody in this room at some point or other has wondered why in the world did this happen to me or to someone I love? Where, where, where was God if he was good and strong? You know, um, And so, yeah, it's, it's a really important question to wrestle with, but I think it's, it's um, how do we get to the point of being able to praise God with, 
without understanding fully. Um, and I think the way we do is to reflect on what Jesus Christ did. Because he experienced the problem of evil. And he voiced the problem of evil from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the problem of evil. <laughs> like he's God, you're good. I'm good. Why <laughs> what is this? You know? Um and so whatever we whatever we think about the problem of evil, we have to acknowledge it. If it's actually Christianity that we're talking about, rather than just an abstract philosophy, we have to like come to grips with Jesus Christ mm-hmm. and what he did on the cross and uh, and ask the, you know, it, it's not, we can't have, we can't write God off as sort of distant and uninvolved mm-hmm. and uncaring about the human predicament. Um, we may not understand exactly why and how. We definitely won't understand why why bad things happen, but at the same time, we can look to Christ who entered into it and suffered it, and actually, and not just in a gratuitous way, but in order to undo evil forever. Um, and so, yeah, any 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 conversation about the problem of evil that doesn't include the cross is. Seriously lacking, <laughs> or at least we're, we're just not talking about Christianity. We're talking about something else. Um, but thank you for saying that. And I also, I just want to say one other thing because uh, I'm just in the in the course of a conversation here. I'm realizing I, I don't. It's hard to anticipate every. Um, yeah, it's hard to anticipate everything. But by mocking the devil, this is not. In any way, and Lewis doesn't mean this either, that somehow what the devil does in the world is funny. And I hope that didn't come across. Um, in a sense, the mockery is, is of his own folly. <laughs> and the fact that he's undone and he doesn't know it and, and that this is the, um, but it, it's, it's in no way sort of trivializing evil as if what, what, what the, what the devil does in the world is somehow we can see sort of a humorous aspect to it because there's nothing funny about about the suffering that that, uh, that happens in the world, and yet um, the power of satire to mock folly is pretty amazing. I mean, like the prophets do it in the Bible all the time, you know, mocking idolatry, <laughs> ruthless, trying to get people to see the absurdity of it. It's really, really dumb, right? <laughs> it's part of it too that you know sometimes the most confident people are the most insecure, right? And mm-hmm. so you know maybe the the nick in the armor, you know, of the devil is this mm-hmm. like he's so insecure about who he is, and that's why he strives and, and reaches and blustering. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah, or or is he? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's a possibility. Maybe he's also just so. So self-deceived that he really does think he's he's gonna, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Thank you for. Yeah. I just want to say to you know the Lord endured it. Yeah. Joy set before him. Yeah. Yeah. Don't sit in the seat of mockers. Mm-hmm. The light and the law of the law. The law of the law. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the joy that gets us. Yeah. That you want to focus on joy in God, joy in who He is. Mm-hmm. Joy and what's going to be. Yeah. No sin. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that actually comes through brilliantly. Like in this book, even though the, the the main drive of this book is 
is sort of this this satire. It's um, like I said, like Lewis's subtext throughout is like you're getting this picture of of God's goodness and what's going to happen. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.